Welcome to the PA Books podcast. PA Books is a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. This program features interviews with authors of books on Pennsylvania people, history, sports, business, nature, and politics. While the focus is always on Pennsylvania, topics like the Revolutionary War, the Battle of Gettysburg, the Industrial Revolution, the coal and steel industries, and authors like John Updike, David McCullough, and John Grogan have a universal appeal. We hope you enjoy this podcast. This is PA Books, featuring authors of books about Pennsylvania's people, politics, history, and business. This week, Larry Alexander discusses his book, Biggest Brother, The Life of Major Dick Winters. Larry Alexander, author of Biggest Brother, The Life of Major Dick Winters. What is so special about Dick Winters that he should get a book written about him, get all this attention? Well, part of uh, the, the thing about Dick Winters is he's kind of typical of the, of the uh, officer who came out of the world, into World War II from civilian life. He just an uh, uh, everyday uh, person, uh, no military training, no military background, came into a job, a difficult job, did it very successfully. Uh, proved himself, rose from a private to a major, from a regular GI to a battalion commander in uh, three years. And, uh, and definitely the, uh, the miniseries helped, too, because the miniseries Band of Brothers and the book Band of Brothers by Stephen Ambrose uh, highlighted this company, uh, Dick's company, because as typical of the uh, uh, kind of a microcosm of the entire war uh, in miniature, because they went from D-Day all the way through to the capture of Adolf Hitler's headquarters in, in Bavaria. And uh, just kind of, and because of that, from that, because Dick was the leader of this company, it kind of rose him to national prominence. Why'd you write this book? Well, I didn't want to at first. It wasn't, it wasn't my original idea. The, uh, but uh, the more I thought about it, when it was suggested to me, the more I thought about it, the more I thought, well, you know, if I don't do this, I, I got to know Dick from my, through my job as a journalist. And I thought, if I don't know, if I don't do this book, somebody who doesn't know him will do it eventually. And I don't know what kind of job they would do. And, and Dick and I had uh, met through my job as a journalism, uh, as a journalist. I had uh, interviewed him during the back in two thousand and one when the miniseries was running, and uh, found out that uh, not only did he grow up in Lancaster, which is, of course I live in Lancaster County, but he grew up in in Ephrata, which is the same town I grew up on, the same street that I grew up on. And uh, from that, and the fact that we knew some of the same people growing up, uh, the, uh, it just kind of, a, a friendship developed, a, a relationship developed there. And uh, we would sit down and talk sometimes, and it was almost like I knew where he was going with his thoughts. He knew where I was going sometimes because we had, you know, because of similarities in our, in our backgrounds. And we just had a, there's a little kind of a magnetism there that I, I think he liked and respected me, and I certainly liked and respected him. And the, the book just kind of grew out of that. You said you're a journalist. Where do you work? I work for the Intelligencer Journal newspaper, which is the morning paper in Lancaster. Uh, I'm basically a, a, a general assignment reporter, and I have a weekly humor column that I write. Humor? Is it yeah. hard to write humor? Sometimes. Sometimes. You've got to look for humor in the, funniest pla- in, the, in the strangest places sometimes. Just in everyday life, then kind of take it and maybe turn it on its head a little bit and, and have some fun with it. So when you decided you wanted to write a book about Dick Winters, you called him up and said, I want to do a book about you? Well, what I did was, actually, my editor suggested it. Uh, we were talking about Dick one day, and I was talking about how, how busy Winters' schedule is. I mean, here's the man who was, at that time, uh, 85 years old, who had as busy a schedule as I did, and I'm 23 years younger than he is. 
And, uh, and my editor, Ray Shaw, said to me, he said, you know, maybe you ought to do a book about Dick because there's probably people out there who'd like to know about this man. And I, my first reaction was, no, I, I've got enough on my plate without that. And then, I, as I said earlier, I, I thought about it. The more I thought about it, the more I liked the idea. So the next time I saw Dick, I, I broached the subject. I said, here, if you want to do this, we'll do it. If you say no, the project dies right there. We won't do it. You know, it's your choice. So he said, let me think about it. So he took a couple of days, and he called me back one day and said, I've been thinking about that project you talked about. And he said, let's do it. So I went up to his place, and he gave me a, a, a crate full of materials. He gave me four bound journals, uh, four bound notebooks with, uh, with his memories in them, his reports, uh, different, all his documentation, a lot of documentation. Uh, and they were broken down. The one said Normandy, one said Holland, one said Bastogne, and the fourth one said Germany. They were all divided up to different segments of the war. And then plus we did, uh, and he gave me those which is the same thing he gave to Stephen Ambrose back in 1980 or 81 or 82, whenever, whenever that was. This is for the book band for of For the brothers? book, yeah. And uh, so uh, I thought, well, I, I, it's a nice, but I didn't want to rewrite Band of Brothers. I wanted, I wanted his life story. I wanted his feelings. I wanted to go beyond his military career and before his military career. Also, I wanted to get to the, to the man himself, why he did the things he did and what made him do, you know, what led to his decisions because he had a way of making the right decisions at the right time. And what what prepared him for this leadership role? So and I so I had to get under the under the shell of the man a little bit here and get into the soul. So he gave me some letters he had written to a woman named Dieta Allman. Dieta lived in North Carolina, uh, and uh, when he was in training at Tacoa in northern Georgia, he had met her through a, through a mutual friend, and they corresponded for three years. And Dick wrote her like I think 117 letters from 1942 through 45. And amazingly, she kept these letters. And after the book Band of Brothers came out, she returned them to him. So Ambrose didn't have access to these letters, but Dick gave them to me. So he said, this will give you something that Ambrose did not have that, you can, that, that will give you more substance. And they were really the kind of the core of the book because I could now get to why he thought, why, why he, what he felt, why he thought these things and, and some of his inner thoughts. Did you spend much time sitting and interviewing him one-on-one? -on -one? Yeah, well, definitely, definitely. Uh, we probably taped, uh, for the book, we probably taped about 25 to 30 hours of interviews. Plus, I had some with him from before, other, other articles I had done on him earlier. So I probably have 40 hours of tape, 35, 40 hours of tape on Dick. And so, and I sifted through all of that stuff. And, and, and again, probing, getting his feelings, which is, is a little bit tough because he's, uh, like most men, he kind of guards his, his feelings. Men aren't as, as open uh, to uh, let out their inner feelings or how they think about things. So uh, it was a little, bit, a little bit tough. And if the book, if you'll notice in, in, the, in the preface, uh, Damien Lewis, who portrayed him in the movie, says the same thing, that trying to learn how to learn the character was difficult for him because Dick guards him, his, his privacy pretty pretty hard. Were there parts of the war that he didn't feel comfortable talking about? No, no. Uh, he was pretty open about everything. And one of the remarkable things about Dick is even though he's, he's now 87, but, but even though he's in his mid-80s, his memory was remarkably good, very clear on things. Uh, he would, uh, the, I remember the final interview we did for the book was in uh, March of 2004. And he was sharp as a tack. I mean, he'd, he'd rattle off information just as if it happened yesterday. 
and, and which I think was remarkable because it, it was just he just had it. He just knew where he was going. He just knew what was happening. Uh, so that, that was very easy. Now we're recording this program in August of 2005, and as of now, how is Dick Winters doing? I have not personally seen Dick in quite a while because his health is such that his family does not encourage a lot of visitations right now. He's had some health problems up and down. He, uh, he has Parkinson's disease, which has been progressing. Uh, he has heart problems, which I think, at last I understood, they were kind of under control. Plus, there are some other problems there that go along with being 87 years old. So, uh, as, as, like I said, as far as I know right now from talking to his family and friends, that he, he's, he's ill. He gets around a little bit, yeah, but he doesn't do a lot of personal appearances anymore. He, they're trying to cut down the number of, of phone calls he gets, the amount of mail he gets is not encouraged. Uh, and definitely they don't want people coming to the doors and asking for autographs and shake his hand, which I've had people ask me where his address is. They want to do that, and of course I, I won't give out his address. How much did his life change when the book Band of Brothers came out and the movie Band of Brothers? The book didn't change his life all too much because as Ambrose wrote that as a filler. Ambrose at the time he wrote that book was working on, he had just finished up a three-volume history a biography of Richard Nixon and he was going to start a, a volume on D-Day, a very thick book that uh, he was doing, doing a lot of work on, which was... And, and uh, so he wanted something in between there, something to fill out some space and, you know, kind of a filler book to get out in the market between, the, between these big works. And so he, and, uh, he met some of these guys, some of the guys of Winner's Company down at a reunion in Louisiana back around, uh, I guess it was the early 80s, I believe it was. I'm not exactly, I forget my dates right offhand. But uh, anyway, he, uh, he met them and heard their story and... Uh, and then Winters and a couple of those other guys visited Ambrose again and went over it in more detail. And then uh, they went to Ambrose's house. He lived in Mississippi, if I'm not mistaken, uh, just, a, just near the Louisiana border. And they went down there to visit him. And Ambrose invited him into his, into his uh, study. And they sat there and they talked about this. And, uh, and after they left, uh, Winters thought, uh, he blew us off. He's not going to do this book. And uh, except for Carwood Lipton, the other men with him agreed, but Lip Carwood Lipton said, no, he's going to call us back. And he did call them back, and, and they went ahead with the book. And again, the book, when it first came out, wasn't as well, it was, it was well received, but it, it wasn't as popular as it was later on when Tom Hanks and Steven Spielberg picked it up for the miniseries. Uh, Ambrose had served as, a, uh, as an advisor for Saving Private Ryan, which of course was a Steven Spielberg film that starred, starred Tom Hanks. And I guess through that, the, uh, the miniseries came up, the idea of, of this book came up as turning this book into a, originally a 12-part miniseries, but was scaled back to 10 parts. And um, that's what really changed Winner's life, of course, getting this, this story out there. Uh, he, said, he said you could trace where, it, it didn't debut every place at one time when it came out in 2001, but he said you could trace where it went because the letters started changing. At first the letters came just from the United States, then they came from England, then they came from Europe, then they came from Australia. He said you could trace, you could trace where the film was debuting by, the, by where the mail was coming from, and which of course substan uh, increased substantially. Uh, I said once the miniseries came out and people saw this, and it was like... Uh, uh, Almost like Star Trek, you know, they got a, quite a following, you know, that of people who uh, who really want to know more about every detail, every every nuance of everything that happened to them. Can you pick an, an incident in your book that demonstrates why Dick Winters was something special? Yeah, probably the the one he the probably the one he would pick is the uh, well, there are two actually. 
Of course, there was the, the one on D-Day at Braycourt Manor where he took 12 men and took out a four-gun German battery recorded by 50 soldiers. Uh, and uh, that earned him a, a Medal of Honor nomination, which he did not get. He got the Distinguished Service Cross. But that was uh, a, a classic small unit action in, of uh, tactics that, uh, that are still being taught, you know, how to, how to assault a position like that. But his best, probably what he considers his best day was in October, October 5th of 1944 in Holland when they were on an, uh, what's called the island, which actually was a peninsula between the, the Lower Rhine River and the Wall River in Holland. And they were, uh, and uh, some Germans had gotten behind the company, two companies of Germans had gotten behind behind their unit to, the Germans were going to attack the, the 506th, the regiment winners belonged to. But they put two, two companies around behind them so they cut off the retreat. Once they figured the Americans were gonna retreat, these guys would cut them off. Well, Winters and his, and his guys stumbled across these two companies. And uh, he was, he actually had about 12 men and they were pinned down by, uh, they were in a field. They had, they'd gone out at night to, to reconnoiter. They'd found the Germans. They, they hit them hard, then drew back into a position in a trench, in a, in a, a ditch, in a field. They were there all night because they couldn't withdraw because they lost, there was daylight now and they, they couldn't withdraw. So the only thing he could do was attack, because if the Germans knew how few men he had, they would they would they could have attacked him, and they'd have had superior numbers. So he attacked with with uh, like 20, 20, 25 guys. He attacked uh, an entire company of Germans and routed them. And then, as they were in the middle of their retreat, another company of Germans came in, and they got caught up in the same route. I mean, they this is the small small company of men, a small platoon of men, uh, did you know? routed two entire companies, almost cut them off from, from, their, from their retreat. And it was the kind of thing that, uh, that he knew he, he, to attack superior numbers like that across an open field, he took, he took a, 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 a severe risk there. But uh, his men had such confidence in him, they followed him into that, and it turned out very successful. It was a, he, calls it a, he calls it the company's best day. Where did he learn military tactics like that? I, I don't think he learned it anywhere in particular. Uh, of course, he took officer training class, which had which which taught small actions, small ta you know tactics, things like that. But uh, I, I think Dick just has a a, a uh, clarity of mind that uh, he thinks fast, he thinks on his feet, and um, he'll size up a situation and he'll make a decision, and it, oftentimes it's the right decision. Uh, when uh, during the Battle of the Bulge, after the bulge was secured. Uh, the, the regiment attacked the, the village of Newville. And, and during the attack, Dick noticed that where he was supposed to advance, there was a quirk in the landscape that afforded them some his men some protection from enemy fire. So he advanced across an open field in single file, which is totally, you know, you just don't do. But he figured that it would be lightly defended, if at all, because of that landscape, the quirk in the landscape almost made attack from that angle impossible. So he took, took him across the field a single file, and, and someone said to him, what if, you, what if you're wrong? He said, that I made the biggest mistake of my life. But he didn't, he got them across with no casualties, where other, other, other battalions suffered in the attack because they came under fire from the Germans. He, he advanced single file, and uh, just a decision he made that, uh, that worked out. Now you have in, in uh, your book a scene where they, they say, that night by the dim light of a candle, Winters sat in his foxhole pouring over infantry assault tactics in his copy of the Army Manual. Nixon, the associate mm -hmm. of his, watched him, then said, you telling me you lugged that damn book all across Europe? 
So there's a military manual that says if you're in this situation yeah, to there's, do this? There, it, there's, some, uh, there's a manual of tactics manual. It's kind of a, a handbook of, of, to give some ideas of, of what you can do. But in that case, none of the situation is there matched what he was going to be facing. So he just discarded it. He said, if I, he said, he, he said, no, he just assumed that it had been a Hershey bar that, rather than a book because the book didn't do him any good. The Hershey bar he could have eaten, uh, and that's when he has a sweet tooth, by the way. But, uh, but uh, in that case, there, yeah, he had uh, the infantry tactics, infantry uh, tactical manual with him, and he was looking at to try to get some idea what to do in that situation. That was the attack on Foy uh, near the in early January of uh, 1945. But again, he just he just winged it on that one too. And he was in the 101st Airborne. Yeah, 101st, 506th Regiment of the 101st Airborne. Yeah, in the Second Battalion. Well, what's involved in being airborne? Jumping out of airplanes. That, that's a big difference. I mean, uh, you, you first of all, uh, you don't have an infantry an Air Fo airborne division doesn't have some of the things the infantry has. You know, they 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 carry more light weapons. They don't carry a lot of big heavy. Yeah, heavier weapons. They carry mostly rifles, Tommy guns, maybe some light machine guns, things like that. And they jump in uh, behind line, behind the lines. As as Winters said in one place, you know, it's the situation normal. We're surrounded, and which is which is typical. Airborne, def, def, usually fought surrounded. They jump behind the enemy lines to disrupt the enemy while the the infantry broke through from the front. And of course. Uh, Winters originally didn't want to go into the airborne. In fact, when his, his best friend in, during basic training uh, said he wanted to go into the airborne, Winters talked him out of it. He said, that's a suicide outfit. You don't want to do that. But when he went to, uh, to, to officer candidate school at Fort Benning and saw airborne troops, he saw the, that they were well-trained. He saw they were lean and muscular and tanned and had those fancy jump boots and all this stuff. And then he felt that, that this is... If I'm going to go to war, this is, these are the guys I want to go in with because these guys know what they're doing. They're well-trained. He was a college graduate when he went in the Army. Franklin Marshall College. Uh, uh, he, had, he, had took, he had taken uh, business courses, economics courses, things like that, although his, his, basic, his better subjects were usually philosophy, religion, things like that. I think he liked, he liked mind exercises. He liked working with mental exercises, which those subjects give him more so than business administration and, and things like that. But... He, so he, he did major, he was a business major, yeah. How did he adjust to life in the Army? He actually liked it. Uh, he was also very physical. He liked, uh, he liked uh, exercising, he liked to get out and run, things like that. And so the, the hard training, he just lapped that up. Did he get along well with his superiors? With the exception of his, his uh, first commanding officer, yeah. His first commanding officer uh, was a very stern disciplinarian. Uh, he knew how to train a company, but he didn't know how to lead men. And there's a big difference in how to, how to train them and how to lead them. He could set a schedule, exercise schedule. He could set all this stuff, but when it came to personal relationships, he was he was totally uh, he was totally inept at it. Uh, in fact, uh, Winters said he was cruel. He would he would go out of his way to be harsh, and the men roundly disliked him. And uh, at one point, uh, I think he saw Winters as a challenge. Winters was his executive officer because Winters was the next. Uh, officer in line seniority wise in the company um, and that's so he became the executive officer the second in command and that's the, I think the guy's name was Herbert Sobel Captain Herbert Sobel and Sobel saw Winters as a, a threat I believe so he set him up with a with a phony latrine inspection one time so inspect the latrines at, at uh, 10 o'clock uh, then he changed the time but didn't tell Winters that and tried to tell him he did tell him that Winters disobeyed orders tried to get him court-martialed uh, 
that led to a, uh, an NCO's revolt. All the sergeants in the company uh, said they were gonna resign their stripes. They wouldn't serve under Sobel. Uh, it, was, it was a bad situation, and finally, eventually, Sobel was uh, transferred to, another, to other duties. And then another commander was brought in. Winters was not put up into command. Another officer was brought in. Uh, Captain Thomas Meehan from, a, from another company was brought into command, Easy Company then. And Winters was kept on as executive officer then. There's another time in your book that, uh, that Winters d disagrees with an uh, order that he's given about uh, snatching German prisoners. Yeah. During yeah. Battle of the Bulge, was it? No, that was, uh, that was in, uh, in France. That was in, in March of 1945. Uh, there was a Colonel Sink, the commander of the 506th, wanted some prisoners to see what was going on across the river. They were on one side of the Rhine, and uh, I think it was the Rhine or the or the motor, motor River, I guess it was. And they were on one side, and of course the Germans were on the other side. And uh, and Sink wanted to know what was going on, and so he sent a he wanted a prisoner snatch. Well, Winters thought, well, the war is getting nearly over. You don't want to take any chances now. They could, they could feel the war was ending. It was March, you know, the Germans were collapsing. They could feel that. War ended in May? In May, yes. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and so Winters thought, this is silly, because the only thing over across that river is sergeants, corporals, and privates, and they're not going to know anyway. But orders were orders, so they sent a patrol across. They grabbed a couple of prisoners. One man was killed. One of his men was killed coming back. And uh, then the next day, or Sink liked that so much, he wanted another prisoner snatch. And that's the one where Winters thought, if we go this time, we're going to have to go further into the town. They're going to be on their guard now. We're going to lose more men, possibly, and we're not going to get any more. These two prisoners gave us nothing. We're not going to get any more again. And he actually faked the patrol. Uh, he just said, you know, he said, if anyone asks you, here's what you did. You went across, you looked for prisoners, couldn't find any, and had to come back. Did his boss want to do that just to show off? That's what Winters uh, thought because uh, Winters had uh, Sink had come up there with one of his, his buddies from another regiment and, and, and Winters kind of felt that, uh, that he was showing off because other companies had tried to get prisoners and nobody had. His company went across, got two prisoners the first night and brought them back, the only ones to have done that. And he thought that, uh, that Sink was trying to show off. He thought it was a bad decision. He liked Colonel Sink, but he thought that was a bad decision. What kind of background did Dick Winters have? Where did he grow up? Dick grew up, uh, he was born in New Holland in Lancaster County. He was born, actually born in Lancaster General Hospital. His family lived in New Holland for the first year or two. Uh, then he moved to Ephrata. Uh, his family moved in with, uh, with what would have been his grandmother. And uh, they lived there for about 10 years on East Fulton Street. Uh, his father worked for PP&L, the electric company. He worked in Lancaster, so he took the trolley ride back and forth from Ephrata to Lancaster every day. And eventually, by the end of the 20s, he got tired of the trolley rides. They moved to Lancaster to Southwest End Avenue, bought a house there, and that's where he grew up. And that's why he went to F&M College. It's just a few blocks away. He could walk there. And Dick was very much for saving money. He kept. A, he was. He was a fanatical about detailing every every penny he spent. What did he want to do for a living before he went in the army? I don't think he really had a decision. He, he was leaning toward, he's, like I said, he majored in business courses, and he always had a, 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 a liking for, for agricultural farming type things, you know, uh, which is what he did after the war. But uh, he, had a, he had a leaning towards agriculture and, and farming. He might have gone into some kind of, he probably would have gone into the same field uh, 
he went, he went to animal nutrition after that. He got a job with an animal, was an animal nutrition, nutrition salesman or something like that. He might have gone into something along those lines before the war, if the war hadn't interrupted him. But coming out of college, he knew right away he was going to go into the Army because it was, it was, everybody saw what was coming, you know. And uh, so they, uh, so and there was a, he figured he'll go into his one-year mandatory duty and then come out and then decide what he wanted to do. So I don't really think he had narrowed it down prior to graduation from college. The war had started when no when he graduated, but uh, there was a draft. There was a draft, and you did one year mandatory do, mandatory military service, and he figured he'd beat the draft. He'd beat the draft, and do his one year of duty, and that was in June of 1941. He graduated. So course, the war had started in Europe, but the U.S. was oh, not the in. The war was going on in Europe since 39. Yeah, and it was pretty obvious. I mean, I think a lot of people knew the war was coming, especially by by summer of 41. They, I get, they certainly had no idea of Pearl Harbor, but they certainly saw the America, America getting involved somewhere along the line. But he figured he'd go in and do his one year of duty and get out. And and but then of course he he totally enlisted and then actually got into the army. It was September of 41. And, of course, the war started a couple of months later, so then he was in for the duration. Did they send him to officer candidate school because he was a college graduate? Was that no, sort of an automatic No, thing? no. He, he uh, just seemed to excel at training. His, uh, his drill sergeant uh, just said, you know, you're very good at this. You know, you're, you know how to do this. You're, you're, you just have the, these leadership qualities. And they asked if he'd be interested in going there. And Dick had, had already thought about this because he was setting up a... Uh, a uh, demonstration. He was he was a corporal at this time, and this lieutenant wanted to give a demonstration of the M1 Garand rifle and the 1903 Springfield. There were two. These were the two rifles being used by the Army at this time: the 03 Springfield, which is a bolt-action rifle, and the Garand, which is a gas-action clip-fed rifle. So Winters laid these two rifles out on the table, and this lieutenant walks in, and he picks up the 1903 Springfield, and he starts describing the, he starts describing it as the Garand rifle, and Winters looks at this and says. I can do better than that. And uh, he just thought the, some of the officers he saw, the lieutenants he saw, were not of good quality. And he figured he could do better than they were doing. And this put the seed in his mind, plus his commander, like I said, his commanding officer suggested it, and so he went for it. How hard was it to get in the airborne? Uh, well, there, there were certain physical requirements you had to have. Uh, you, it was probably it was it was difficult because first off, well, you, you could get into the airborne, but staying in was the, was the problem. The, the training schedule was very vigorous. Uh, if you failed to jump out of the airplane when the time came, you could wash out. Any number of reasons you could wash out. I there I had more men washed out than actually made it. I don't know what the percentage was, but say of, of every ten who went in, maybe two made it, something like that. Uh, so that was, it was very demanding. It was, and Winter, like I said, Winters lapped that up because he liked the physical exertion. He liked the, the, the long runs and the, and the, and the, the uh, calisthenics and the physical exercise. Did he like jumping out of airplanes? Well, his first one, he probably had the same thoughts most people did. Why am I up here? What am I doing here? But then he realized if he wants to do this, he's got to jump out of the airplane. So the first time, probably, I'm sure everybody has that same, that same feeling. I know I would. When did he go overseas? They shipped overseas in September, I believe it was September of 43. They shipped out of New York and uh, over to England, where they went into training over there for, uh, for the D-Day jump. He was in a thing called Easy Company? Yeah. What was that? Well, okay, the 506, is bro each regiment's broken down into three battalions, okay? 
And those battalions are broken down into companies, companies of maybe 160 men, something like that. So Easy was the, the uh, fifth company in, in the uh, in, in, in the 506th. It was, it was A, B, and C would be 1st Battalion. D, E, and F would be 2nd Battalion. G, H, and I would be 3rd Battalion. Then you had a headquarters company, and you had a, and you had a mortar squad and things like that also in, involved there. But Easy Company would have been one section of the, of the 2nd Battalion. So he was the boss of Easy Company? Yeah, after D-Day, his, his commanding officer, Captain Meehan, was killed on D-Day. His plane was shot down. His, his, yeah, his, his uh, C-47 was shot down. So Winters, uh, by default, assumed command of uh, Easy Company and then maintained that until after the episode I mentioned in the island in, in, in October of, uh, of 44. At that battle, the assistant battalion commander had been killed in that battle. And a few days after that incident, uh, Sink asked him to if he wanted to be executive officer. So he left Easy Company and became the executive officer of the, of the uh, 2nd Battalion, and eventually taking over uh, duties as battalion commander. And how many men did that involve overseeing? Battalion would have been uh, three, three companies, uh, roughly speaking, maybe 400 men. How long was he in England before D-Day? Well, he was in England, I, I, guess I think it was September of 43 until the jump in, on June 5th, 1944. What they do? So, well, he, they lived in a village called Aldbourne, which was uh, west, uh, west of London, I believe, uh, a little village where they bivouacked the soldiers. Now, he stayed in a house. He, he had made friends with the, with the village grocer, a man named Francis Barnes, and uh, he had met them while he was at church one day. He went into church one day. He had to get away from these guys. He'd been in, on a boat with these guys for 10 days. He was in a cramped, cramped in a small camp with them. He had to get away, so he went into Aldbourne and went to the church. And then he needed some time alone, so he went to the cemetery that adjoins the church, and there were two benches there. And he was sitting there just enjoying the day, and this older couple came into the cemetery. Their son was buried there. He was killed during the Battle of Britain. And they laid flowers there. Then they saw winners, and they went over and just made, struck up conversation with him and uh, kind of became friends and invited him over to tea and things like that. And then when word came down that they were going to bivouac officers in the town of Aldbourne, uh, the Barnes family said, we'll take two, provided Winters is one of them. So Winters and his executive officer, Harry Welsh, uh, lived with the Barnes family on the second floor above, above his grocery store. And he kept in touch with the Barneses? Yes. Yeah, well, Mr. Barnes died before the end of the war. He had uh, probably heart problems. I'm not sure what it was. He died in, uh, while, while Dick was in Holland in uh, the latter part of 44. But uh, Mrs. Barnes and he, and he co corresponded until probably the early 70s when she passed away, yeah. What did Dick Winters have to say about D-Day? Well, what do you have to say about D-Day? The, uh, of course, it, a, lot of, a lot of skepticism when he got into that plane, you know, and they're flying over to England. Of course, he had a lot of things going through his mind, like, uh, can I do this? Can I lead these men? Am I gonna get them all killed? You know, a lot of a lot of self-doubt, a lot of uh, anguish going on, until he hits the ground. Of course, then then I guess the training kicks in, and you do what you're there for. Uh, he, uh, of course, the, the the idea is to get the job done. They're there for. They're there to get. They're there to open up the causeways. These, the causeways behind Utah Beach. Causeways are like highways or roadways, coming from Utah Beach inland, and the Germans, of course, had blockaded these and. The 506th, one of their jobs was to clear the town of uh, St. Marie-Dumont, which was a main town astride behind, behind Utah Beach. 
That was their mission. And of course, to, you try to get there. You're scattered all over creation that night because the planes are, the planes that are, that are dropping you are bobbing and weaving, trying to avoid any aircraft fire. So when, when Winters and his men dropped, they weren't at their drop zone. They weren't anywhere near their rally point. Rally point usually is when you jump, jump out of an airplane, uh, the first man out, when he hits the ground, starts walking in the direction the plane was going. The last man out walks the direction the plane came from. So somewhere in the middle they should meet, and that's usually the rally point. They, they pick this out, and they, they, they know how long, about how long it takes to get out, because if you jump out 30 seconds, the first man jumps out to the last man is 30 seconds, they're a mile apart till they land. So they've got to come in and meet in the middle someplace. But on D-Day, you could throw that out the window because nobody knew where they were. Uh, he finally figured out where he was, he, uh, and near, near, uh, he was near, uh, uh, anyway, uh, he, he found out where he was. I just I'm, I, I knew the name of the town; it just escaped me. But he, he found out where he was. He got a, he, someone, one of the men told him where, about a road marker he saw, and he uh, he got out a map, got a compass out, figured out where he was, and could take the men then the direction he had to go. And finally, they started picking up more men along the way. They linked up finally with the battalion. Uh, but even then, the battalion only had about we should have had 400 men. The battalion had about 40 at that time because they were so scattered. So they got all their stragglers together. They were down about, you know, to about 40, 45 men for the entire battalion just because they were so widely scattered. Dick Winters lost all his gear on the way down. Yeah, he lost everything except his trench knife and someone even stole that. But, uh, yeah, they had uh, what's called a leg bag. It was something they, they got foisted on them at the last minute. It was a British, uh, British in invention. Uh, it was a, a bag attached to the inside of the right leg. And when you jumped out, uh, you pulled a, a pin out and this bag dropped to a rope about 20 feet below you. So, and, that, and you carry your spare gear in there. Well, the planes, when they jumped out, the planes were going like 150 miles an hour, which is much too fast. Uh, so when these guys jumped out, the prop blast, in Winter's case, blew the leg bag right off his leg. And same with his, same with his um, musette bag. He had a musette bag, which is a smaller bag on, a, on his chest here. And even that blew off, and, he, and so he, he lost everything. He, he saw where the bag dropped, but he couldn't get to it because a German machine gun was between him and the bag. So he just figured he'll pick something up along the way, which, of course, eventually he did. Can you explain about the clickers? Oh, yeah. In uh, the airborne troops going into D-Day had a little gizmo called a cricket, which was a, just a child's toy, which you clicked. Uh, they were like tin, and, uh, and you clicked it. Well, if you heard a noise out ahead of you and you didn't know, didn't know what was there, you clicked it once. And if, it, if the other side, if the person on the other side was friendly, he clicked it twice. So it was one click for recognition, two clicks for response. And if you didn't have that, if you didn't get that response, you either hit the cover or you opened fire or whatever, because that was then the other odds are it was hostile. Whatever was out there was hostile. Well, what did they do after the first day of D-Day? I mean, they landed and started moving. They started out well the after ocean? after on after uh, on D-Day. Of course, Winters took the guns at his at Breakwater Manor. And then the battalion moved on after that. So Winters, after he mopped up at Breakcore, advanced on towards St. Marie Dumont, which was their main, their main objective. Uh, they didn't, it was a couple of days till they actually got there. And I think it was uh, maybe three or four days till they actually got to take the, t to attack the town. But you just advanced towards there and had to fight your way there, basically. Uh, for, for a day or two, I know Winters uh, and his men were, were pulled off the line and 
put back to uh, Guard Singh's headquarters for a day or two just to get them off the line a little bit, kind of rotate them. You'd rotate them to give them a break, you know, get them off the line, put them back on to guard the headquarters, then put them back in the line and bring somebody else back, you know, just kind of rotate your troops a little bit. So they, they attacked, uh, I think it was like three or four days later, they actually attacked St. Marie Dumont and took the, took the town. And then, of course, there was some fighting after that, too. They were, they were in, in Europe until around the end of June, so they, uh, which was interesting because when they first jumped in, General Taylor, the commander of the 101st, said, give me three days of hard fighting, I'll pull you off the line. Well, they were in combat for uh, more than 20 days. This is Maxwell Taylor? No, General, uh, yeah, 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 yeah. How many casualties did, casualties did they have? Oh, I'm not sure the casual that winners easy company lost more than uh, about 20 well about 20 25 men that who would not return you know some of those were wounds that the men were sent home but 17 men were in that first plane that went down with captain Meehan. so they lost 17 right there on the, on the right off the right off the bat plus other casualties he lost a few on the uh, going into St. Marie de Mont, defending St. Marie de Mont, there were a few men killed and wounded. So, uh, but then he had more, but some of the, uh, he had more casualties than that, but some would come back. Some would come back. I have it in the book. I forget the exact number that they, they lost at, uh, in, uh, in Europe, but uh, on the, at least on D-Day anyway, between June 6th and June 30th. So they went back to England after that? Yeah, they shipped back to England. They, they were shipped to uh, Cherbourg, for a, to, uh, for a bit of a break there, to get him off the line. Uh, and there, Winters had to, to kind of treat the men. He, he treated them, he had, all the, he had their uniforms dry cleaned at his expense. He, as he told Captain Nixon, he said, I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna go out to a bar and drink anything. What am I gonna do with this money, you know? So he, he didn't drink, he didn't smoke, so he wasn't gonna spend it on that. So he feared he had, he'd have the men's uniforms dry cleaned for them and get them looking sharp. Then they went to Utah Beach to await transport back to, uh, back to England. And then, they, of course, it was, they were shipped back to Alborn again, back to their home base. And they were there until September, when they, before they jumped into Holland. He didn't smoke or drink? No. No, he took a sip every now and then, but just on occasion, a very, very rare occasion. But he did not drink, he did not smoke. Uh, did he swear? Only when he had to. Only when he had to. He, he, for the most part, he felt he didn't need to to make his point. I mean, certainly, you know, there were times he would... He would uh, Get angry or forget himself, but uh, ordinarily he did not. Was he religious? Uh, that's a good question. Uh, we never talked about that. Uh, he grew up uh, in, a, in a Reformed church, which is now a United Church of Christ, and then eventually his mother went to a, a Lutheran church. But uh, I, I don't recall Dick really talking about a, a, a church life uh, outside of when he was a boy. As an adult, I mean, he, he was in a way, he'd, he'd, he'd go to church services in the field. And he uh, talked about uh, some of the services in there. Now, and then he talked about this when he was in the Alps after the end of the war, and he was stationed at Caprun in Austria, and he mentioned this, the mountains and the, and the sunlight making a natural cathedral, a good place to pray. And he read the Bible during, during combat for inspiration. He said, not so much, he said not so much out of, because I'm, you know, overly religious, but for inspiration and for, uh, for, for uh, just kind of to uh, take the pressure off. Can I ask you about yourself a little bit? Yeah, you sure. said you're a reporter for the yeah. Lancaster mm -hmm. Intelligencer. Um, how long have you been doing that? Uh, since 1993. I've, well, that's full-time from 1993. I was a freelance reporter for a couple of years before that. Before that, I tell people I had a normal job where I had weekends and holidays off. 
I worked in printing for the most part, most of my life, uh, proofreading, editing, things like that. What kind of schedule do you work as a reporter? Uh, I'm kind of on call in a way. Supposedly it's 3 to 11.30, but uh, in the evening, because we're the morning paper, we work evenings. But there are days I can start at 9, 10 o'clock in the morning, depending on what it is. Or, you know, so it's just, uh, you know, it's more, of, more of, of how many hours a week you have than hours per day. Because some days you may have 10 hours, next day you may only have to work five hours. You just know you make up your, your full week schedule by the end of the week. And you grew up in the Lancaster area? Yeah. Yeah, I grew up, like I said, I grew up in the same block where Dick Winters grew up on in Ephrata, East Fulton Street. Is this your first book? Yeah, yeah. It's the very first time. Is it different writing a book than writing for a newspaper? Well, absolutely. Absolutely. There's a, I remember when I first, my, I first sent my first sample chapters out to, uh, to, uh, to my agent. He had a couple of editors he liked to use to look them over. And one of the editors wrote back, said, you can tell this guy works for a newspaper. Just the style of writing. What did that mean? Uh, I'm not 100% sure. Is that but an uh, <laughs> <laughs> It might have been. It, it was just a, a very, it was a, you know, just a very factual type of thing. I, I, my biggest thing in this was I wanted to bring this book to life. You know, I wanted to bring these characters to life, which is why I wrote it in a, a sort of a novel style because uh, I wanted the people to feel it. Newspaper stories, you can't get, you can't take some of those liberties, you know. I mean, you, depending on the type of story you're writing, but you, you got to just put the facts in in a newspaper story. Where here I could, uh, I could, uh, Editorialize a little bit. I could, I could, I could uh, be a little more creative with this, and and uh, a little more descriptive, and do things with this that I couldn't do with with a newspaper story, or even even a, a straight biography. I, I didn't want to write a straight dry biography either, because I've read some biographies that are, uh, that are. I mean, I'm reading one right now on, on General Erwin Rommel, the German general. It's very informative, but it's also very dry reading, you know. And that's what I didn't want to do. I wanted to, my goal was to make the reader feel like they were in a seat right next to him on that airplane when he jumped into, into, into Normandy. Did Dick Winters read this as it was being written? He read early chapters, and he really liked the early chapters. And then I, I'm not sure exactly if it was, if he's just getting tired or what, but eventually after about the f first four or five chapters, he said, he said, you know, I don't really have to see these anymore. He said, uh, he said, I said, are you, well, I said, are you comfortable with the way I'm going with it? He said, yeah, I'm comfortable with it. Uh, he did give me one compliment. I mean, he, the first early chapters he wrote, he, he'd write things like excellent on them and takes my breath away. He really liked them. He told people how much, how complimentary they were and things like that. Hey, the first chapter he, he complimented me. He said, this is better than Ambrose. He said, uh, he High said, praise. yeah, I thought so. He said with Ambrose, he said, we worked like crazy to get that first chapter going. He said, after that, he said, we got him, we got him, he said, I, he said, I got him, I, I forget how he put it, but you know, kind of like, I, I got him trained after that, <laughs> is what he was kind of saying. And, but the fact that he said it was better than Ambrose, uh, really, you know, that made me feel good, like I was doing my job. Was there anything you wrote that he didn't feel comfortable with the way you described it? The only thing we changed was in the very beginning, I was doing it, writing it in first person. With, you know, as though he were telling the story. And we did that for about six months, and I wasn't sure I wanted, after a while, I thought it started out working out well, but I wasn't sure how it was gonna go later on. And, I, and then Dick said to me, Dick said, I, you know, I'm really uncomfortable with that. I said, well, we can change that then. You know, he was very uncomfortable with it also, and, and I was too, so we changed from first person into, into uh, the way it is now. 
there's a, there's a lot of information in here about uh, who went where and what happened in what sequence. How did he keep track of all that uh, and and not kind of have it you all mean as far together as, over time? You mean as far as uh, as far as unit movements or, or during yeah. the war? Yeah. A lot of that stuff. Uh, he remembered some of it, but some of it also came from the documents he gave me. Uh, his reports. Uh, there was in there were also letters from some of his men after written after the war on certain actions. He had letters from Lipton. He had entered letters from Don Malarkey. He had letters from Bill Garnier, and these these were also helpful to me in how they uh, in outlining what happened and how they moved and things like that. So they, you know between between his memories and the documentation that he gave me. Uh, and of course, uh, uh, using some of the resources, uh, uh, Ambrose's book also talked about that a little bit too. So, and, and so, uh, although I didn't try to use, draw on Ambrose's book too much because I didn't want to duplicate, but uh, there were some things in there that he had that also helped me to define who went where and what and things like that. Did he keep a diary during the war? Yes, he did. His uh, aunt gave him a five-year diary before he left in the train station, and he kept it religiously. Now. The diary, I didn't have too much access to. Now, he, but, uh, and uh, for some reason, he'd like to keep, again, probably had things in there he didn't really want. And, uh, but a lot of places, I didn't need that because he also, he, he, uh, some of the places he actually took excerpts from his diary and put them into his reports and thing, into his uh, documents. So some of the documentation that I had was written after the war. He put it together for Ambrose. So he pulled excerpts from his diary to put into these things that he gave to Ambrose when Ambrose was writing the book. Now you said you were able to read all the letters he wrote to this woman. Yeah, uh, yeah. And did he write letters back home? He wrote letters home, but you know, uh, the only letters that were preserved were the ones that he wrote to Dieta Allman. She kept them all, including the envelopes, for f over 50 years. She kept them. Uh, unfortunately, he didn't keep her, so I don't know what she wrote to him. I can only infer what she wrote to him by some of the responses he made. You know, I think she was, uh, I think, there was a relationship there as far as there was, a, there was some emotion there. Uh, he said it was a platonic relationship, which, which it might well have been, knowing Dick. But I think there were some emotions that were in deeper than that. Because he, uh, he said to me and, and uh, during one of our interviews that when he came out of the war, and I think I have it in the book, when he came out of the war, uh, the fact that uh, they went their separate ways after, after 45. They saw each other in December of 45, and that was pretty much it. But Dick said, if I had had a job, if I had had a direction I was going to go with my life, it might have been different. Who did he marry? He married a woman named Ethel uh, Stoppe from, uh, she, he met her when he was uh, living and working in uh, New Jersey. She was from, I, I don't want to say the name, I think Metuchen, New Jersey, but I'm not sure. She was from that area and he met her there, saw her at a train stop every day when he was going to work. He worked for Nixon Nitration. He went to work for, he went to work for his best friend, Louis Nixon, after the war uh, at, uh, as a general manager and plan manager for uh, Nixon Nitration Works. And uh, going back and forth to the job, he saw her in a train station and the one day he gathered up his nerve and asked her out. And her first question to him was, who, do you, who in this area do you, who do you know that I might know? I mean, and she's references. asking for references. <laughs> and uh, he said, well, no one, probably. I'm new here. I work as the personnel manager for, uh, for a Nixon nitration. And she called to double check that and then accepted the date. Did they have kids? They have two. They have two, a son and a daughter. Grandkids? Uh, yeah, I'm not sure how many, one or two. Uh, so uh, getting back to the war, D-Day was over and Easy Company was taken out of Europe back to England? After, yeah, they went back to England, and uh, 
and brought in replacements. Uh, they, uh, they knew they were going to go back into combat again. So they had, and the next time they went in was, uh, was Operation Market Garden, the invasion. The, the, uh, this was General Montgomery's plan to uh, shorten the war by, by driving into Germany, by going through Holland into, across the Rhine into Germany. Uh, they had a few false starts before that because uh, they, were, they were alerted, they were going to jump, and then, but the, the war was moving, moved, was moving that quickly that the American troops and the Allied troops overran their drop zones before they could get going. So they had like five false starts, and finally they got this, this one here, and they went into Holland. Very easy jump, easiest jump they ever did. There was no un, un, uncontested jump, at least for them anyway. It wasn't that way everywhere, but... Uh, and uh, they were in Holland then, they were in Europe then for the duration, from Holland through, uh, through Germany and into, into Austria eventually. Operation Market Garden was not successful. No, no. It was partly successful in that it, the idea was to capture several bridges. Uh, but the one they wanted, the one across the Rhine into Holland, they couldn't get to. Uh, British paratroopers lost heavily there. Uh, more than half of them didn't come back, either were killed or captured. They were just cut off and the, and the Allies just couldn't get to them. But no, it was not successful. It was not successful. You have a scene in there in the book where the British troops are advancing and they're about a day behind and they have to stop and have tea. Well, they, yeah, they actually did. They they stopped and they started brewing. They st just halted. Well, I, I'm not sure if they were, they were probably ordered to halt there. I mean, they, they, I'm sure they didn't do it on their own, but uh, there was they were told about this critical timetable. We've got to get from to to uh, relieve the British troops. We had two days to get there. Well, they were so far on behind schedule. They were like four days behind schedule already because of delays. They only had one road. The Germans kept cutting the road for them. Uh, there was more op opposition than they anticipated. So they were, they were hours and hours and days and days beyond behind schedule. And they, and they just was not a sense of urgency that Winters, uh, they, they actually stopped brewed tea when they took their break. And Winters thought, well, so much for this critical timetable that we were told about. You know, he was a little disgusted by it, but that's... He was very much, very much of a stickler for things like that. How did the Battle of the Bulge unfold for the 101st Airborne? Well, <clears throat> they were pulled off the line in November of, uh, of 44, given a chance to, to, to rest. Uh, they were told they weren't going back into combat for months. They, were, they would be off the line for quite a while. And uh, so they turned in their weapons for repair, replacement. They sent men around on leave. And suddenly they, they got a message that the Germans had broken through in the, in the Ardennes Forest in, in, uh, in, in Belgium and in, in Luxembourg, and they were supposed to get ready to go. Well, they had a quick get their weapons together. They had, a, uh, they, they had no ammunition, or very little ammunition. The men didn't have what they were supposed to have when they went in. Uh, they had no winter clothing. They put on layers of clothing, like two or three pairs of pants, shirts, things like that. And they just were sent in to plug the, uh, to stop the German advance. And they were sent to Bastogne, I think, which is like 12 roads came together at Bastogne, something like that. A lot of different roads from all angles, several major highways. And that was going to be a major route for the German advance. And they were put in to plug that gap. And the 82nd was sent further north and to plug another gap further north. The 82nd Airborne. But they didn't parachute in. No, they went in by truck. They went in by truck. They were trucked in. Uh, it was a night move, and Winters knew it was urgent because the trucks had their headlights on, which you didn't do at night. You didn't move with, uh, with your lights blazing. And, uh, but there was urgency was there, and they had to get up there. And when they got there, they found Americans who, American infantry who were there were retreating. So they, they grabbed some stuff from these guys, some ammunition, supplies, things like that, because they were demoralized. They were heading back. They'd had enough. 
And so they went in there and they set up their defensive positions around the town of Bastogne and a big, just put a ring around it. The Germans eventually cut them off and surrounded them for about three or four days. They were cut off totally. How'd they get relieved? Well, they eventually, the uh, Third Army, General Patton's troops, eventually drove a wedge in from the south. They came up from the south and opened a supply route the day after Christmas. So, uh, and they eventually that was the, but, and, but the, the German advance had been, had been blunted. The Battle of Bulge, they, the Germans only got uh, so far, they couldn't get any further. They, they started pulling back. Uh, the, the 101st doesn't insist that they were not relieved by that Patton did not rescue them. <coughs> they, they, they felt that they would have, you know, the Germans would have receded, it would have receded anyway. Uh, the Germans were pulling back, but, uh, but, uh, but Patton did kind of break the siege by getting supplies into them. Of course, there were airdrops too once the sky cleared, once the weather cleared. A lot of bad weather in that part of that time in December. And finally when the, finally when the sky is cleared, it could drops, be supply drops, and Patton's men coming in from the south, plus the Americans pushing down from the north also. Uh, just eventually just pulled, the Germans had to pull back. So that was December of 1944, that the war ended May of 1945. What did they do in between? Well, after the, after the siege, after the bulge was declared over, which in mid-January, of course, then the advance continued then. So they started taking some, the towns in front of them, uh, just moving, moving through Newville and other towns, advancing into Germany. Uh, then eventually they were, then they were pulled out and sent uh, to another part of Germany. Down, they, they crossed the Rhine. Crossed the Rhine. You know, they were they were pulled out, sent to another part, sent to southern, more more of a southern Germany, more of that area down in there, and they advanced on uh, on uh, some of the the, the, uh, the in, through southern Germany towards towards Austria. They were they were their goal was to, they had gotten word that uh, eventually they got word that uh, the rumor was that the Germans were ordered to. Uh, to uh, establish a final de defensive position in Bavaria to kind of a last stand type of thing. And they were sent down there to, to help take care of that. Of course, it was just a rumor. There really was no, no such a thing as a national redoubt. But uh, it was just one of the rumors that had, been, that had gotten credence in the closing days of the war. But uh, they were on the offensive almost the whole time. They, they were pretty much on the line from the uh, end of the bulge through the end of the war without, without much break. Did Dick Winters talk about the concentration camps they liberated? He did, but like you know, he did, but like most veterans, uh, he didn't go into a lot of detail. He talked about the horrors of it and uh, why people could do that. Uh, he talked about uh, the, the the huts the prisoners were kept in, the filthy conditions, and the and the uh, how the Germans just shot the prisoners down uh, as they retreated. You know, and uh, he. Uh, yeah, you know, that's probably the most painful thing he discussed with me, for his memories. Did he talk about killing people? Well, yeah, yeah. He did again. It's something he didn't dwell on. He he told me he during the war he is he he carved notches into his rifle barrel into his rifle stock rather, and I asked him how many how many notches he had, and he said seven, and five of those were were in June 1940, between D-Day and the time they were pulled out. Five of those probably, most of those five were at Carrot at, at Breakcourt. I think he shot at least uh, he shot and killed probably at least three or four there that I can think of. Now, at one point they go to Berchtesgaden, uh, Hitler's yeah. mm -hmm. mountain retreat, and, yeah, that's and an interesting liberate story. his wine cellar. Well, the whole thing, the whole advance to Berchtesgaden was kind of a, it's kind of the the, the uh, cherry on top of the Sunday. You know, it's, it's everybody wanted it. 
because it was this was Hitler's headquarters. This was his playground. He went there. He built this this chateau on the mountainside, uh, which was basically an armed military camp because there were hundreds of SS troops guarding him there. And then he had this coffee house, this tea house on his peak called the Eagle's Nest that they made for, they built for him for his birthday, which was accessible by a gold-lined elevator. Uh, this was this was the pearl, you know. And everybody wanted to get there, and there's still some contention of who got there first. Winters insists they got there first. Seventh Infantry says they got there first. But now Winters, but when Winters got there, he said the town was undisturbed. There was no, there was no looting. Nothing was, nothing was taken. You know, he said if anybody else had passed through there, they'd have, they'd have, they'd have looted the town. So he insists they got there first. They got there, and they secured the hotel, which is what General Taylor wanted for his headquarters. And then he sent some of his men up to take the Eagle's Nest. The, the Hitler's tea house. The uh, chateau itself had been bombed by the Air Corps. That was, that was pretty much just a, a bombed out shell. But the tea house was intact. And they went up there and they took that. And, and while they were scouting around Breakfast Garden, the, around Hitler's estate, they came across, uh, he came across Hermann Goering. Hermann Goering was Hitler's uh, chief of the Air Force, uh, his private wine cellar, which was actually for his officers' club. And uh, the, the biggest problem he had there, of course, was making sure that. That, uh, that they didn't go to excesses, you know. So what he did was he had Louis Nixon, who was, uh, Louis Nixon had a, had a he was a, a connoisseur of fine liquors and also was an alcoholic, but uh, so it came from experience. But he said, he said, he took Nixon there and said, pick out what you want and have each company take a truckload and the rest will leave for whoever comes afterward. So second battalion, each, each of the three companies got a truckload of, uh, of, Goering's, of Goering's liquor uh, which they packaged very carefully. They moved shortly after that. They had a they had a leave breakfast garden. They move on down towards Caprun in Austria, but they packaged their their alcohol very carefully uh, when they moved out. But yeah, and of course, Winters told them he wanted discipline. He didn't want them getting, you know, he, he didn't he didn't want them getting drunk and getting and carrying on, and he wanted them to behave themselves. You know, where was Dick Winters on VE Day? V.E. Day, they were at Hitler's uh, at Berchtesgaden. He got the message there, and he uh, he went up to the to the tea house and, and told his officers about it. That's where they were, and told them about it. And they were at Hitler's headquarters when the when the when the war ended. Yeah, they moved out for for Caprun the day after the war ended. Did he think he was going to get transferred to the Pacific then? He wanted to. He, the uh, the. Uh, the there was a good chance the 101st was going to go there. I mean, they, that was known. The 101st was going to be transferred to the Pacific, but they didn't know when. And Winters was the kind of guy, uh, he knew he was going to go there. He said, if I'm going to go there, I'm going to go now. He didn't like the idea. The war was over in Europe. They were still fighting in the Pacific. And he, he always had a thing that he said, why should someone else be fighting when I can't, you know, I should be there with them. You know, they're fighting. I'm not. I feel bad about that, you know. And that was the same thing he told. He talked to Dieta one time too. Dieta kind of, kind of wished he could have stayed in the states, and he said, "I can't stay there while people are fighting. In, people are fighting over here. I can't let someone else fight my battles." He felt the same way about the Pacific. War's over here. They're over there in the, in the Pacific fighting. I want to be there with them. I can help them. He felt he could lend his leadership's qualities to these men and make sure they got home too. He was also activated for Korea. Yeah, yeah. He uh, fortunately he didn't go to Korea though. He uh, by the time he was married, he had one child. Uh, he was still working for Nixon Nitration Works, and uh, he got his call back orders. And he actually drove to Washington 
to see General McAuliffe. General McAuliffe was a former deputy commander of the 101st Airborne. So Winters drove there to the Pentagon, walked in, no appointment, got in, and McAuliffe actually saw him. He escorted him in there into the office, and Winters put up his case that he didn't want, he didn't want to go there. He said, I did my bit. I volunteered for the Airborne. I volunteered for the Army. I volunteered for, for combat. I, I volunteered for the paratroops. I've done my bit. Uh, to hear the end of that story, you'll have to read the book because we're out of time. And this is the book we've been talking about, Biggest Brother, The Life of Major Dick Winters. And we've been talking to the author, Larry Alexander. Thanks very much. Thank you. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast of PA Books, a production of PCN, the Pennsylvania Cable Network. We'd like to hear from you. Our email address is pabooks at pcntv.com. Like us on Facebook to learn more about PA Books.